In July of 1505, my friend Martin Luther, 21 years old, was traveling on his way uh, home and uh, traveling between cities. Massive thunderstorm hits the area. Uh, He's freaked out, okay? And just so you can know a little bit more about my friend Marty, he had a very sensitive conscience, okay? He lived in the 16th century, which is a time in Western Europe when you were constantly reminded of the fact that the day of judgment was coming, that um, you were going to uh, that you were going to suffer. Even if you were a believer, you were going to suffer in purgatory, according to the Roman Catholic Church, for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years. And it was constantly put in front of you in, in the forms of artwork and in um, and lessons from the priests that you had to depend on the grace that was gifted to you by the church. And in addition to that grace, you had to work. You had to work. And so, uh, you know, he's on the road, thunderstorm hits, lightning strikes really close to him, knocks him to the ground, or he jumps to the ground, and he's afraid he's about to die. And he is so scared of what that means for him as a sinner being in the presence of God and and facing that judgment. And so he cries out, as any good Roman Catholic in the 16th century would have, he cried out to a saint to help him. He cried out to St. Anne, and he said, St. Anne, please help me. Spare my life, and if you do, I'll become a monk. Now, we may have be familiar with that story. That's the day that Martin Luther decided to become a monk, and sure enough, that's exactly what he did. But as we think about that story, I just want to remind you that him becoming a monk was not a spur-of-the-moment decision, often as we may think of it in those terms. Again, Luther was a man who was concerned with, how am I going to be forgiven? And the overarching message from the church in his day was, you have to work for it. And so obviously in his mind, he had already been thinking about the fact that if he was going to be right with God, maybe becoming a monk would be the best way to to work on that aspect of forgiveness. Because nobody was going to do more religious work than a monk or a nun. And so when that lightning bolt hit and he was so scared he was going to die, that pushed him over the edge. And he said, that's it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to become a monk. So he becomes a monk. He goes to the Augustinian order uh, there in Erfurt and he joins that order, which was no, no, uh, it was known for its strictness. And so he says, I'm going to join this particular order of monks. And what did he do with the, in that monastery? He got to work. He got to work doing all the things that they told him to do, observing his vow of silence in particular days of the week, working hard in the the menial tasks of cleaning the floor and and doing all the different things that that they were tasked to do, and then, you know, following all the rules, and then, of course, confessing sin regularly, and then confessing also how he had broken the rules of the order that week. For example, if he was walking in the courtyard where there was supposed to be silence and he accidentally kicked a rock and made noise, he would have to confess that um, that, that at the end of that week. And so he was a, a very sensitive man to all these failures, and so he confessed a lot, a lot, a lot. And he, so because he confessed a lot, that meant he had to work a lot. So he had to work harder and work harder. And you can just picture him working so hard, trying to, to earn the grace of God, trying to, to make things right. And the reason why his story is so, I think, compelling for us is that we all lean towards that performance orientation. We all lean towards, I owe God and therefore I should get to work. Now, that might look a little bit differently in different people. 
So some of us might really resonate with Luther, and we might just think, I really got to get to work. I got to get to church and endure these sermons, right? I got to score points with God. I've got I've to give money to the church. I've got to be involved in the ministries of the church. I've got to work and work and work and do and do and do. Of course, others in our day and age reject the idea that they are in debt to the Lord. That denial of that, that debt, that denial of sin, right, is a means of dealing with it. They're, they're, they're thinking, okay, I'm guilty. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm guilty. I don't want to go through this, you know, like, you know, hardcore works, you know, work my way to heaven deal. So I'm just going to say, hey, God's just kind of a Disney, Disneyfied version of God. He's just all grace all the time. There's nothing that's really wrong anyway, and they kind of try to deal with it in that sense. Both of these attitudes, either I need to work off the debt or I deny that there's a debt, both of those attitudes miss the gospel. Luther was missing the gospel. And maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling on one of those extremes or somewhere in the middle. The fact is, both of these groups find help from Jesus. And we find it in the form of these narratives, especially here in Matthew 12, where Jesus is confronted by the religious leaders of his day, they thought they were going to accuse him of failing to be a faithful lawkeeper. They thought they were going to accuse him of being a faulty religious teacher and teaching heresy. But in fact, they found out he's actually so much more. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with that works orientation, or if you're here this morning and you think you don't need to be worried about your debt before God, there's encouragement for you here and instruction in this section in Matthew. So let's pick it up in verse 9. We come off of the first eight verses. Pastor Josh explained these last week. Jesus deals with the assault on his uh, supposed breaking of the Sabbath. By the way, it was really interesting in that text how Jesus does not say, I didn't, we're not breaking the law. He just says, I'm the boss of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll see how, how that same kind of that vein of thinking, the Messiah's authority, Jesus' authority as the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on flesh for us, how his authority is the main issue. But watch in verse 9 as Matthew strings these events together. He says, moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. Now, before we get to the, the main event here, in verse 9, Matthew describes it as their synagogue. It was the synagogue of the Jews. It was the synagogue of the local town. It was Jesus' synagogue in as much as he was Jewish, which of course he was. Why does Matthew say their synagogue? Some commentators think, and I think they're right, that Matthew is winking at us here to let us know that there's this growing separation between Jesus and his generation, the generation that witnessed his first advent. It's, now it's not his synagogue, it's their synagogue. The synagogue of these local leaders, the synagogue of the Jewish nation who will reject him as being the Messiah. So moving on from there, Matthew says, he entered their synagogue. Verse 10 gives us the setup. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus enters the synagogue, much like you entered Green Palm Bible Chapel this morning. And he comes across this particular person who had a, a shriveled hand. And you could imagine a variety of, of issues that would cause someone to lose use of their hand. But as someone loses use of their hand, over time, what will happen is the muscles will atrophy. 
And so you have this problem where this person can't use their hand. Of course, in a pre-modern context, you can't say, hey, Siri, do whatever. Wait, don't, don't do that, Siri. Okay, thanks. Yeah, but, you know, you, you can't just, you know, yell at, at, your, uh, at your technological device to do things. So the loss of use of a hand is a major problem. And this person obviously is now severely handicapped in that context. And so, nonetheless, here he's showed up at synagogue that day. And so he's there and Jesus sees him. And the Pharisees are there. The same ones that were hiding in the field last week to catch Jesus and his apostles snacking on the grain, right? And they're there. It's their synagogue. In fact, they're there because they're leading the synagogue. And they see Jesus and they see that Jesus sees this man. Maybe they see them talking or something and they say, aha, We've got a moment, an opportunity here. And so it's interesting how Matthew words it. He tells us that in order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, this was an ongoing debate amongst rabbis in the first century. We have documentary evidence explaining that there were different positions on this exact issue. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The basic conclusion for most people was it is lawful to help someone if their life is in danger on the Sabbath, but if their life isn't in danger, it can wait until the next day. Therefore, most rabbis of the day would have said it is not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. It is lawful to try to save someone's life on the Sabbath. They are asking Jesus this question to put him in a pickle. They want him to say the wrong thing. And really, whatever he says is going to be wrong in their estimation. All the while, here's this man who's suffering with this condition, not able to use his hand. That man to these leaders is simply an opportunity to confront Jesus. In the setup here, we see, once again, the problem with this performance orientation, or another term I'll use for this is this law-keeping mentality. The problem with law-keeping is that law becomes the focus not the glory of God. These leaders of the community, they were, you know, hiding out to catch Jesus and his apostles doing something wrong, snacking on the grain. This time, they're taking advantage of the synagogue meeting and this man's, uh, you know, handicap. And they say, okay, we're going we're gonna to take advantage of this situation. And rather than care about the individual, rather than care about the glory of God as it interacts with what's going on in their community and this person's life, they rather see an opportunity to put Jesus to the test over whether or not he's following the rules. His rules, by the way, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. His rules, he's the author of the law. But they're not concerned with that. They haven't come to understand all of that yet. They just simply know he, they don't like him. He doesn't follow their rules. He doesn't follow the law according to their interpretation of it. And so they want to catch him in that. They want to expose him. They want to show him to be a faulty religious leader, someone who shouldn't be followed. And here again is the problem with this works orientation. When we make our approach to God about law keeping, if it's about what we do, 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 if that's what it's all about, inevitably our focus will become the law itself, the rules themselves, rather than God and his glory. It's so easy to be distracted by the rule keeping. And this is not to say that Jesus doesn't call us to a particular way of life. He does call us to a particular way of life. There is a law of Christ. We're going to talk more about that in a moment. But the fact is, and maybe many of us can resonate with this, even in Christian families sometimes we can grow up where where rules become the focus. And when rules are the focus, when law is the focus, 
We are the focus. It's not love for God and love for people. It's have I kept the rule? These Pharisees didn't care about this man. He was a pawn in their greater issue to preserve their authority and discredit Jesus. They cared about the rules. Now, if, if that's the road we choose to go down, if we choose to walk down this road where we're going to approach God by virtue of law-keeping, it will most certainly distract us from actually loving God and loving people. How does that work? Well, law-keeping turns people into props. Again, just think about this man standing there in the synagogue with this disability. And rather than thinking about loving him and encouraging him and, and honoring God by loving him and encouraging him, they're using him as a prop, as a means or a pawn, as a means by which they can get to Jesus. They don't actually care about this person. That's what law keeping does. It distracts us from caring about people and it makes us focus on the rules. It also turns our attention to ourselves, right? And so when we do actually uh, love someone or do something right, we pat ourselves on the back and we feel good about it. And there's pride that comes with that. Or if we fail, which inevitably we will, we could go into despair and, and depression because we have failed and now there's no hope of us getting to God. A law-keeping mentality is always destined to fail. And so like a monk trying to scrub a floor clean that continues to get dirty, we're in this never-ending cycle. Scrub harder. You get done with that section, you go over here, and what happens to the other section? It gets dirty again. You got to scrub harder. You got to go. You got to scrub harder. You got to work harder. And this is the Pharisaical mindset that Jesus encountered. That kind of living, right? If, that, if that's how we're going to approach God, that kind of living robs us of hope, joy, and thankfulness. There's no, there's no love in that. There's no joy in that. Just ask Luther. I mean, here's Luther thinking he's solved you know, his problem. He's going to become a monk. He's going to be closer to God than anyone on earth. And the more he worked as a monk, guess what? The more he realized how great his sin was. It didn't help him to be doing more religious things, to be working harder at it. It actually made the problem worse. He was miserable as a monk because he couldn't ever do enough to pay off that debt. His sin was always lingering there. There's a caution here as we see the Pharisees interact with Jesus. If we're going to focus with, you know, on law-keeping, then law will be our focus, not God and not his glory. So what is Jesus' answer? Look at verse 11. And let's here listen to Jesus. Matthew writes, He replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? Pause right there. We have... <laughs> documentary evidence that this was also a point of discussion in first century Jewish circles. The question of if my sheep falls in a pit on the Sabbath, should I get it out? That question may have kept you up late at night. I'm not sure. Uh, some of you, I know, have worried about that. Uh, but I tease. I hope that hasn't bothered you. If it has, come talk to me after the service. But the fact is that it was an issue here. And in fact, we have the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have one record of the, the strict community of the Essenes, and they actually said, you cannot help an animal if it is stuck in a pit. 
Uh, even if it's going to die, you have to just leave it there on the Sabbath because you can't work on the Sabbath. Now, that was the extreme position. Most of the first century uh, Jewish community would have said, you can help an animal out of, out of a pit. You can help an animal out on the Sabbath, you know, to save its life or whatever. They would have said, they would have had some measure of, of recognition. Hey, this is the real world, and it's ridiculous for us to leave this animal in this pit all night where it's exposed to predators or whatever. Get it out of the pit, right? Common sense prevailed for most people. Jesus relies on that. He says, listen, if, if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, who's not going to get it out, Right? 99% of people surveyed are going to get it out. Okay, Jesus says that's common sense. Then verse 12, he makes the turn. A person is worth far more than a sheep. This is building, of course, off of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, that mankind is created in the image of God, and as God's image bearers, we bear unique value in creation, greater value than animals. Doesn't mean animals don't have value, they do, but human beings have greater value than animals, right? Jesus makes that argument from the lesser to the greater. If you would help a sheep on the Sabbath stuck in a pit, then certainly it would make sense that you would help a person because a person is worth far more than a sheep. But notice how Jesus words his answer. A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. That's not exactly what Jesus was asked. He was asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus says, let me help you with actually the heart of your question. You're not just asking about healing. You're asking about the Sabbath in general. And Jesus says, whatever the situation is, whatever, whatever you know, catch-22 you can come up with to try to trick me, my answer is going to be, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Now that right there would have been a dramatic moment to hear Jesus explain that, right? To draw the analogy from the sheep to people, just talk about how people are valuable, more valuable than animals, right? He lays it all out, gives a really great answer. It's excellent. It's really good. But then right there in the middle of the synagogue, Jesus does something remarkable. Watch verse 13. Then he told the man, I mean, we almost forgot about this guy, right? The man with, with the disability, the crippled hand, and he told the man, stretch out your hand. He can't. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. I can't really emphasize enough to you the drama of this moment, and part of the drama is because of the way first century synagogues were laid out. I just want to show you a picture so you can envision it happening. Here's a reconstruction of a first century synagogue. Okay, you can see that it's like, a, it's like in a U shape, and people would be sitting all around the sides, and you'd have uh, you know, the pre presentation happening from the middle. But the fact of the matter is, is that as this man right, is there, everyone would have been able to see what was going on. And in full sight of everyone, Jesus not only answers the question, it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath, but then Jesus actually does what is good on the Sabbath. Not only is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And whatever else was going on, for all those people in attendance, whatever was going on in the heart of those Pharisees, as we'll see in a moment, what Jesus does in that in that in that instant in time, he does what is good. And maybe you could argue by the pharisaical mindset, he broke the law. He violated the law of Moses and he worked on the Sabbath. You could make that argument. 
But Jesus said, if that's the argument you're making, you've missed the point. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Watch me. Watch me do it. I'll tell you who had a good day that day. That guy showed up to church. Listen, I'm, I mean, I'm big on church attendance. You know that. You want a reason to show up to church? This is the reason right here, okay? Problems are solved, right? I mean, this guy shows up to the gathering, and he's going to hear the law read, and he's going to be inspired with the conversation, and he's hopefully going to be encouraged in worship. But the fact is, this guy wasn't thinking, hey, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to come home with full use of my hand. But he did, because that's how good Jesus is. Watch verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Well, here we have it, don't we? There are two kinds of people in the world. The people that are willing to do good on the Sabbath and the people who plot to kill those who do good on the Sabbath. I mean, the contrast from Matthew is clear. He says, here's the reality. These Pharisees sat there and watched Jesus, heard him explain the principle clearly and watched him do good and prove that he was the Messiah promised from the Old Testament They walked out of that meeting and they considered and plotted, how are we going to kill this guy? Why would they do that? Because for them, their authority, their position, their power and influence, right? That was more important than anything else. And yet the reality is what Jesus both teaches them verbally and then shows them by this healing is that to do good is the very law. And it's the law of Christ. It's the heart of the law to love God and love people. We're going to get there in Matthew. In Matthew 22, this issue is going to come up again and Jesus will explain, listen, don't be so concerned about the law. What you need to be concerned about is the heart of the law, which is loving God and loving people. This is called the law of Christ by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 21 and in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. The law of Christ is simply to do what is good and right. It's to stay in step with the Holy Spirit, we find out in Galatians 5. To do what is good is the law of Christ. That's the calling for God's people. And the contrast is so clear. This guy was was ecstatic. His life was changed. He was restored. Jesus has explained to do what is good is right, even on the Sabbath, and of course on the Sabbath. And yet the Pharisees walked out of that meeting, and they were concerned with undoing Jesus. My friend Spurgeon talks about this healing and a few others that Jesus also did on the Sabbath. He says that Jesus felt bound to meet the superstition of the Pharisees and he met it by a flood tide of mercy upon that day to the sons of men. When Jesus encountered law-keeping, works orientation, you know what Jesus did? When When they confronted him and called him a lawbreaker, he said, watch my mercy. Look at my goodness. Look at the goodness of God on display. Spurgeon calls it a flood tide of mercy. Jesus focuses on what is good, and that is the heart of the law of God, the law of Christ. If you're concerned about whether or not you should do something, if you're worried about the rules, go to God's word, not as, not as an oppressive system of regulations to kind of condemn you, but go to God's word and ask, what is good? What is good? And as I alluded to in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us our concern is to walk by the Spirit, to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He leads us through his word. 
So this is not a Bible-less life we're talking about. We're talking about following God's word as he's gifted it to us by his spirit. But our question is not, well, is it right or wrong to do X, Y, or Z? The question is, what is good? What has God called me to do? How can I love God with all that I am and love my neighbor as much as I love myself? To do good is the law of Christ. And so if we're looking for wisdom, that's where it is. You'll find it there. Jesus explains it and models it for us. But you can't read this passage and not address this drastic contrast between what Jesus has done for this man and the Pharisees. Because they full-on reject Christ because he's a threat to their freedom, their position, their authority, their way of life. Now, not everyone who rejects Christ does so shaking their fist at God's face, right? Sometimes rejection of Christ is mellow. It's subtle. It's change the topic, right, ish. It's let's not talk about it, let's talk about something else, ish. It's let's avoid the issue, ish. But inevitably, when we respond to Jesus with rejection, when we say, yeah, thanks, but no thanks, or if we shake our fist at Jesus and say no to you, either way, what we're saying is, I prefer my freedom, my authority, my way of life, and I certainly don't want to submit it to you. I don't want to change. These Pharisees did not want to change their religious system. They didn't want to change their approach to God, and they certainly didn't want to give up the power and authority that they had. But don't you realize that that's exactly what you have to do if you're going to come to Christ? If you're going to come to Jesus, if you're going to be transformed by his grace— that demands surrender. You have to give up authority. You got to give up. You're not the law. You're not the lawkeeper. You can't do it. You got to give up the works orientation. You, you've got to give up the right to say, "Well, I know what is best." You can say, "I'm a follower now. I'm not the leader. I'm the follower." And yes, when Jesus calls me to a particular way of living, I'm going to make changes. And I'm going to start saying no to the things that dishonor Him. And I'm going to start saying yes to what honors Him. I'm going to say yes to what is good. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder what is good. He has gifted us with his word to help us in this, to guide us. But what about you this morning? How are you responding to Christ? Are you in agreement and submission? Or are you someone who's saying, no, I'll do it my way? Thanks, Jesus. I've got it covered. Think about this man, this man who's in the synagogue and he's there to hear the word of God. He's there to be encouraged, but he's not thinking he's going to be healed. And then all of a sudden, here's Jesus who not only teaches him what is good, but he actually does good to him. He receives the mercy of God, which changed him. I'll tell you what, that guy did a lot of things when he walked out of that synagogue. One of those things was not I wonder how we should, if we could kill this guy, right? This Jesus is a problem. He didn't walk out of there going, let me tell you something. I got 10 reasons. Check this out. Boom, 10. I got 10 reasons why Jesus is a problem. Like, no. No. He walks out of that synagogue, and he's, he's humbled, and he's joyful, probably worshipful. We don't get the whole story. We don't know. But he wasn't against Jesus, I can tell you that. And he wasn't on the fence about Jesus. He wasn't saying, yeah, maybe, thanks, but no thanks. No, he was, he was all in. What about you? 
The fact is, the more we think about it, we think about the law of God, the call to love God with all that we are, the call to love people, we know that we fail. What should we do? Well, here, Matthew helps us by explaining what happens next. Watch verse 15. So the Pharisees have gone out, and they're plotting against Jesus right after the service. They're talking about how they're going to kill him. Verse 15, Matthew tells us, Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. Now, just pause there at verse 15. We're going to get to the rest here, but this is what happens. So the Pharisees go out, and they immediately have a special meeting, and they're like, we're going to try to figure out how to, to, to kill Jesus. Jesus is aware of this. Matthew doesn't tell us if it's supernatural awareness or if it's just common sense, whatever. I think I lean towards supernatural awareness of it. But all that to say, Jesus knows what's going on. And rather than stay there and engage in more conflict, because that's what would have happened. There would have been greater conflict. There would have been more tussling, okay? Theological wrangling, questions asking. They're trying to prove him wrong, all this stuff. Jesus withdraws. But as he withdraws... As he withdraws, what happens in verse 15? The large crowds followed him. And Matthew says, and he healed them all. Like, Jesus leaves, and these, all these people are like, here, what's going on? And they're like, wait, which one, who should we follow, the Pharisees or Jesus? Like, it's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? And so they all are following with Jesus. Now, not all those people have saving faith. Some of them are attracted to the spectacle. But nonetheless, they follow Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He continues to do good. He continues to alleviate their pain, proving that he's the Messiah by healing. And Matthew doesn't detail what exactly he did, but he just says he healed them all. He continued to do good. But then this leads to an important prophetic fulfillment for Matthew. Watch verse 16. He, that's Jesus, warned them not to make him known. He wasn't time to go to the cross yet. So he tells people, you know, don't don't make it known. But watch verse 17 so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. I'm going to track back with you there. Let's track back to verse 18. Matthew sees this passage as fulfilled in Jesus' ministry, particularly in this moment where Jesus withdraws rather than engages with the Pharisees. The, the passage comes from Isaiah chapter 42, and Matthew quotes these four verses basically in their entirety. He leaves out a little bit, but basically it's the full four verses. The reason why he does this is because it's not just about this one moment, but it's about the sum total of Jesus' ministry. So let's just walk through it real quickly and just consider what Isaiah is saying about the Messiah. In verse 18, this is Matthew, this is, uh, Matthew 12, 18, or Isaiah 42, 1, we read, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. Notice here, we, I think likely Matthew includes this part of the quotation because it's Father, Son, and Spirit all together. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? All working together in the Messiah's mission. You'll notice, of course, in this 
context, the Messiah is referred to as God's servant. Oftentimes we'll talk about the, the suffering servant of Isaiah. Of course, this servant is the one who brings about God's will. And the nation of Israel failed to do that. And so it, it fell to the Messiah to do that work. Of course, that was God's design all along, that the Messiah would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 42 and, of course, 53 later. But in this section in Isaiah, there's a lot of explanation about what the servant will do. Well, in verse 18, he will proclaim justice to the nations. So here we see, we see Matthew just doubling down here on Jesus' identity as the Messiah, but he's saying he's the one that's going to make it all right. If you want to know what's lawful, what's just, what's right, and what's good, look to the servant. Look to Jesus. But then he comes to the quotation in Isaiah, the part of this uh, chapter 42, where it deals really with Jesus not engaging. So Jesus withdrew. Verse 19, he will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. Matthew says, let me tell you what Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about this exact kind of moment where Jesus refuses to needlessly engage with, in conflict with these, these leaders who have rejected him, and he withdraws peacefully to keep the peace. He's not spoiling for a fight. He doesn't want to, you know, he, he's, he's not trying to aggressively engage and, and cause a big conflict of course, it's not time to go to the cross yet, and so he's not going to argue or shout. Matthew says this is exactly what was going on. He was gentle. Of course, in the greater context in Matthew, isn't that what Jesus has told us? That he's gentle and lowly in heart? Matthew says it's true. These guys, these guys were morons. They had rejected him, and they wanted to kill him. And Jesus, instead of coming at them, Jesus withdraw, withdraws. Notice verse 20. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. Reeds are famously easy to bruise. They're easy, easily you know, knocked over. And so a bruised reed is an image here of someone who's been treated harshly. And here Isaiah has said the Messiah, well, he's not going to bruise a reed. He's not going to you know, put out a smoldering wick. He won't break a bruised reed. He's gentle. He's caring. You know, a smoldering wick. He's not going to accidentally blow out a weak candle just by the force of his breath or by speaking harshly. Jesus models this. He fulfills it. He walks away from the conflict. But notice at the end of the verse, verse 20, until he has led justice to victory. Jesus is going to gentle his way to victory. What does that look like? Well, read the rest of Matthew, right? He's going to, in gentleness, he's going to say no to this conflict and he's going to do the will of God on earth and he's going to do good and do what is right and teach and heal. And as he does so, he he will lead justice to victory. He will actually make justice happen. And then, of course, in verse 4 of Isaiah 42 or verse 21 in Matthew 12, the nations will put their hope in his name. Now, this is really interesting. Because if you turn to Isaiah 42, verse 4, and you read it in your Bible, the line says, the the nations will put their hope in his law. Now, maybe Matthew has a different Hebrew manuscript that says his name in it. But whether that's the case, or whether Matthew understands what Jesus had taught him, right, and he makes this change to the quotation, either way, Matthew says, don't miss it. Don't miss it. We do need help from the law of God. But that help from the law of God comes from the servant. 
See, our hope is not in our ability to keep the law. The nations will put their hope where? In his name. In the servant's name. In the Messiah's name. In the name of Jesus. You see, our hope isn't in law keeping. Our hope is in the law keeper. Crucial distinction there. Our hope isn't in law keeping that we can work and earn and do, right? Our hope is in the great law keeper. The one who does it for us. The one who leads us in what is good. He's the one that we look to. This quotation from Isaiah 42, it's not just about Jesus being gentle, although certainly it's about that. Jesus is gentle and caring and wise and good, but it's also about the fact that he is that suffering servant of Isaiah 42 on into 53. He's the one who will later in Matthew go to the cross for us. And if you want to know how you gentle justice to victory, that's how you do it. By loving so much that you're willing to die for someone else. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. That's why our hope is in his name. It's not in our name, and it's not in our ability to keep the law. Jesus brings about justice how? Well, it's in two ways, actually. If you, if you look to the cross, Jesus brings about justice on the cross in two ways. First is, he pays for our failure to keep the law. So if we talk about the law of God, the law of Christ, love God, love people, you have failed to do that every day. Every day of your life, you could find a way that you failed to love God as much as you should or love others as much as you love yourself. And if you don't think that's true, you're lying to yourself, right? So we fail in that every day. Jesus on the cross died for our sins, which means that justice has been rendered for our failures. That debt has been paid. That's, that's the first way. But there's another way that the cross brings justice. There's another way that Jesus gentles justice to victory. It's that by faith in Jesus, we are then gifted righteousness. We are declared righteous. In 2 Corinthians 5, we learn that we become the righteousness of God. He became sin who knew no sin, and we become the righteousness of God. So not only is our debt paid, but then we are declared righteous. Just, good. Not because you kept the law, but because he kept the law, even when he was snacking on grain on the Sabbath. Right? Because Not because you kept the law on the Sabbath, but because Jesus did good on the Sabbath. By faith in Jesus, when, when we consider our standing before God, our standing before God is absolutely secure. Because if you, if you point out your failures... We say, look to the cross. Jesus died for those failures. And if you point out, well, you know, the fact that we continue to fail, we say, look to the cross because I've been declared righteous because of him. I've been given new clothes. Our hope isn't in law keeping. It's in the law keeper. In Romans 3, the apostle Paul says, Jesus had to be publicly crucified so that the whole world would know that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That God justly deals with sin and that he actually declares us to be righteous. One false presentation of Christianity basically says, oh, put your faith in Jesus and God sweeps your sins under the rug and just pretends like they're no big deal. No, no. 
Our sins are a huge deal, but they were dealt with on that cross. And what is so remarkable is that in his refusal to, to get into a fight with these Pharisees and, and as he withdraws himself, right, Jesus proves that he is that suffering servant. And he proves that he's trustworthy. How do the nations find hope in his name? The nations find hope in his name because he's the only one that can keep the law. And he's done it for us. Because of the cross, forgiveness and grace are compatible with the righteousness and justice of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair or right for God just to forgive some and not others. Right? But the fact is, because of the cross, forgiveness and grace are compatible with God's righteousness and his justice. As Matthew quotes Isaiah 42, he does so to comfort us. And I think it's important that we need to acknowledge that we often are the bruised reeds. We're weak. We need help. And in this passage, we find out that Jesus helps the hurting. There was one famous Puritan who wrote on this exact passage in Isaiah 42 and Matthew 12, meditating on this line especially that Jesus will not break a bruised reed. And he said this, He said, it's so simple. He said, we live by mercy. Like, the only reason we draw breath is by mercy. Our forgiveness is by mercy. Our standing in the sight of God is by mercy. And that is of tremendous comfort when we acknowledge that we're weak. If we're claiming that we're not weak, that's when we're in trouble. How should you respond to Jesus in this passage? Well, at the bare minimum, you should come to him. I mean, that's the calling. Come to Christ. Be forgiven. Receive mercy. You come to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, well, how good were you at keeping my law? Right? How'd you do? No, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you what? Rest. You know what Satan wants you to think Jesus says? Work for it. You want to come to me, you work for it. You clean yourself up, and then you come to me. You sort all your problems out, then you come to me. And there you are, like a tired monk, scrubbing that floor. Got to get it cleaner. Scrub the floor. You got to make it pretty. And Satan says, oh, you missed a spot. Oh, you missed a spot. The Christian says, I know I missed a spot, but I have a Savior who paid for my sin. Now it's 1515, and Luther has done something revolutionary in the last 10 years. He read the Bible. And he was reading and teaching on the book of Romans. He's reading about Romans 1, verse 17, which says, In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And that phrase always bugged him. The righteousness of God. God calling me to do and to work because he's righteous and just and I have to perform. And he said, at that moment, the lights came on when he realized that it was a righteousness of God, not that he should work to earn it, but it was the wording he uses is, is, is that it was a gift of God, namely by faith. That's what Paul says in Romans 1.17. In the gospel, right, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's by faith. Luther says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. He was no longer a monk. 
scrubbing the floor. Why? Not because he got him clean enough, but because he finally found the gift of salvation by grace through faith in the law keeper. Dear ones, we're always tempted to look at ourselves as needing to perform to earn God's love. But you need to know that God loves you just because he is love. And our hope isn't, therefore, in our ability to keep the law and earn forgiveness. Our hope is in the great law keeper who knows that it is good to do right on the Sabbath and has poured out a flood tide of mercy for you and me. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, you're hurting, you're struggling to come to God, maybe you've experienced abuse in the past and people treating you harshly, maybe even spiritual authorities doing that, you need to know that people fail you, but Jesus never will. And here, what does he demonstrate? He demonstrates that he is that suffering servant who died to pay for your sins and died that you could be called righteous. He is the law keeper. It's by faith in him that we are healed. Would you pray with me and we'll ask for his help. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for this particular passage in Matthew. Um, Lord, just again reminding us that it is lawful to do good on any day. Lord, we thank you for the the way that you proved your identity as the Messiah, as the servant of Isaiah 42, by healing this man, and then, Lord, by removing yourself from the conflict, and by being gentle, being lowly in heart. And Lord, we praise you that you demonstrated that humility by going to the cross for us. Lord, we thank you for keeping the law. We thank you for always valuing your relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit above all else, Lord. And we thank you for loving others as much as anyone should care for their neighbor. Lord, we thank you for that that fulfilling of the law that you have accomplished for us. Lord, we thank you for paying for our failures and we thank you for the grace that comes in being declared righteous because of you. But Lord, we pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help those especially who are stuck in a, in a performance orientation. This morning, Lord, I pray that they would be freed from that they would be able to get off of that treadmill, get up from scrubbing those floors, Lord, and that they would look to you in faith. Lord, I pray for those who may be here who are not followers of you. Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of the gospel in their heart and help them to see what you actually said and taught. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider our response to you. Lord, lead us not in rejecting you, but in turning to you in humility and following you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to earn your love And we thank you that we can never lose it. And we pray these things in the powerful and precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.